turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. going to depart from our study of Acts for the next couple of weeks, dive into the Christmas season, not because I really wanted to do so, <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to continue on with Acts, but really needed some extra time to meditate on this next section as Paul goes into Jerusalem and faces the uh, uh, imprisonment that he's going to face and, and what exactly, how that exactly pl- applies to our lives. I wanted, I wanted that to cook a little longer before we got into that, so... Uh, so we're going we're to look at Isaiah, these wonderful prophecies concerning the birth of Christ. And I want to look at it uh, a little different than maybe uh, you have looked at it in the past. And think about it in its context, the context uh, of, of Isaiah 7 and where that prophecy is given in the historical context. And then pull some uh, applications from that. Well, let's read the first 17 verses of Isaiah 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, You will not be firm at all. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria." May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes, bless this word to us. We pray that it would be a a blessing to our 
spiritual lives that, that might be exhibited in the way that we live our lives on a daily basis. Lord, we pray that Christ would be proclaimed by these, by my lips, the gospel would come forth and encourage our hearts. We pray you do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We often, at this time of year, think of verse 14, of course, the famous prophecy that the virgin will conceive and bear a son and will be called Emmanuel. That verse was spoken to Joseph uh, when it was revealed to him that Mary was with child. The angel came to him and told him to fear not, but take Mary as his wife. Not often do you hear what the original context of this prophecy and what was going on in the life of Judah uh, when Isaiah the prophet was given this word from God to deliver to the people there in 732 to 35 BC. A long time, 700 years before Christ was actually born. Now Ahaz, the fellow that we are introduced here at the beginning of this passage, was the third of four kings under whose reign Isaiah prophesied. So Isaiah had a long uh, prophesying career. The first two kings to whom Isaiah ministered was Uzziah and Jotham, and they were considered good kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Ahaz, on the other hand, was a wicked king. Second Chronicles 28 tells us that instead of walking in the ways of the Lord, he made metal images for the false gods of the day. Uh, he made offerings to those false gods. He even went so far as to sacrifice some of his own children to those false gods, burning them on the altar. The chronicler, chronicler makes it clear that he was extremely active in these abominations he was so bad that when he died, they wouldn't even bury him with the other kings in the royal sepulcher. He, they, they threw him out elsewhere. Now, because of his abominable practices, the Lord God allowed Judah to be attacked by Syria and Israel. And that's what's going on here. In this passage, there's several names and places mentioned, so I'm going to try to sort that all uh, out for you so you can kind of get a grasp of what's going on here in the story. There's four major players in this historical scene before us. Of course, we have Ahaz, the king of Judah. He was a descendant of King David. After David's son, King Solomon, died, you probably remember that the kingdom of Israel was split into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, Israel in the north, capital being Samaria and Judah in the south, the capital being uh, Jerusalem. And, and this was where Ahaz ruled, where his palace was, and it's where Isaiah ministered. And he would have had uh, much to say to Ahaz. Because Ahaz was a descendant of David, Isaiah sometimes addresses him and his leaders around him as the house of David. That's why he uses that language. And I don't believe this is a coincidence that Isaiah refers to him in such a way because Isaiah, I believe, is 
subtly reminding Ahaz of his heritage, of his spiritual heritage, of David's faithfulness to the Lord, and that Ahaz has the obligation as king of Judah to follow suit. And Ahaz has not done that. So that's Ahaz and Judah. Israel is the second nation in our text. In this passage, the nation of Israel is sometimes referred to as Ephraim. Uh, It's a a figure of speech. Ephraim was one of the tribes. It was the largest tribe in the ten northern tribes. And so uh, sometimes the part is referred to as the whole. Sometimes we talk about Washington as, you know, we say what they do, you know, what Washington says. We're not talking about George Washington. We're talking about the government and the United States. Washington says... So there... He, when he uses Ephraim, he's talking about the nation of Israel. He's just using the largest tribe to describe the nation. Israel was ruled by King Pekah. He was a usurper to the throne, and he himself had murdered the previous king. He took him out himself by his own hand, and he took over the, the kingship of Israel. Pekah was the next to the last king of Israel, Things are, things are going down for Israel. They have rejected God, and now we've got this usurper in their place. And God doesn't think very highly of Pekah, because when he's talking to Pekah, or when he's talking about Pekah to Ahaz, he doesn't even use his name. He says he calls him the, the son of Remaliah, and he never, never says Pekah, because he has such disdain for him. It will not be long from these events of Isaiah 7 that the nation of Israel will be overtaken by the Assyrians. Now the third nation that is mentioned is Syria, or Aram, as they're sometimes referred to. The capital was Damascus. The king of Syria was Rezin. He's the last king of Syria. They will also be conquered by the Assyrians. So don't get the two confused. There's Syria and there's Assyria, two different nations. Now, Assyria, this fourth nation, is a rising power. They have uh, iron weapons of warfare, which makes them superior to everyone around them. They're a bunch of nasty, mean people who, who rule with terror. And when they conquered a place, uh, after they devastated cities, they would keep the people in constant fear. They would pile up heads outside the city gates to warn people not to revolt against them. Uh, They would impale people on the outside of the cities just to to continuously have a warning against them. This is the nation that Jonah ran away from ministering to. You know, God said, go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and tell them to repent. And Jonah says, I'm not going to those wicked people because I don't want them to repent. I want them to burn in hell because they're terrible. And God says, no, you go. And of course, you know the story of Jonah. So these are the major players Here is the situation of chapter 7. Razan and Pekah, the king of Syria and Israel, they've gotten together and they've made an alliance. And they have said, let's go and we'll we'll attack Jerusalem, attack Judah, and and we will get our own king and put it in in place of Ahaz. We'll we'll get our own puppet king. And so that's what they are, are, are about to do. And they are there at the very gates of Jerusalem, uh, ready to attack. But it hasn't happened yet. And we look there in verse 2, and it says, When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, 
Israel, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake the wind. So for Ahaz and Judah, this was a supreme national crisis, and they are shaking in their boots, literally, is what Isaiah tells us. Now we know from the books of Chronicles and Kings exactly what Ahaz was planning to do about this. He was going to ask the Assyrians to come to his aid and to help him out against Syria and Israel. Ahaz thought he could call on the the Assyrian king, who was Tiglath-Pileser III, if you're familiar with that history, ask him to come to his aid and attack that Syrian-Israeli confederacy. It sounds kind of funny in our modern context, a Syrian-Israeli confederacy. (laughs) It wouldn't happen today, would it? Completely different. Here's where we pick up the events in in verse 3. Verse 3 tells us how the Lord instructed Isaiah to go with his son and meet up with Ahaz at one of the pools in Jerusalem. Perhaps Ahaz was out checking the water supply and making sure everything was ready for the siege that he was anticipating. In any event, we see Isaiah coming with the word of God intervening in a time of national crisis. He's got some really great news from God for Ahaz. And here's the message, verse 4. Be careful. Or, uh, you know, don't lose your composure. Uh, take care. You know, be guarded about the, the situation. Don't shake in your boots. Don't freak out. Be quiet. You know, relax. I've got this. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint. Don't give up hope because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. That's a a great image. A firebrand would be like a torch. Sometimes a torch is called a firebrand. Sometimes we refer to people as firebrands if they are really uh, on fire for their cause and are very outspoken. We might describe them as a firebrand. In either case, God says this about them, that they are smoldering. They, they are nothing anymore. They might have used to burn brightly and be powerful, but now they're like a torch that's almost burned out. They're hardly smoking. They're just barely glowing, and soon they will be snuffed out. God knows exactly what's going on. He, he says, either way, these two kings are about to be extinguished. And this should have comforted Ahaz, who was shaking like a leaf at the thought of these two men invading Judah. The sovereign God over all the nations is giving Ahaz inside information on the strength of these two nations. And it's a very positive report to Ahaz. He should have been delighted to find this out. But God continues and lets Ahaz know through Isaiah that God knows exactly what the enemy kings are thinking, planning, and saying. Not only are they weaker than they appear, Ahaz, but here's what they're planning. And he says, verse 5, Syria with Ephraim, uh, they've devised evil against you. We're going to go up against Judah, scare them, and we're going to conquer it for ourselves, and we're going to put this, this dude, Tabeel, in place of Ahaz. So God knows exactly what's going on, but the best part is verse 7. 
these two evil kings are saying this, they're making these plans, but thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. You know, you can make, they, they can make all the plans they want. They can, uh, you know, posture outside the gates of Jerusalem, but it's not going to happen. God says so. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. What reassuring words for this king. This king who made sacrifices in the high places to false gods under every green tree, as it tells us in the Chronicles, who sacrificed his children there. God comes to him and gives him these reassurances. And one would think that would be enough to reassure Ahaz. He knew Isaiah, and Isaiah was obviously a faithful prophet sharing the word of God. But look, God doesn't even stop there. He goes further. Not only does he give his words of reassurance, but look at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. He says to Ahaz, look, I'm telling you the truth. And I'll back it up with a sign. Any sign you choose. It can be deep as Sheol, high as the heaven. Use your imagination. Ask anything. And I will make it come to pass to show that what I'm telling you is true. Now that's, that's amazing. Could you imagine God coming to you? Uh, he gives you a message of good news at, at a crisis point in your life. And he incur you get this encouragement. That, that would be great. But what if the Lord just came to you and, and also said, now just to reassure you further, ask me for any sign you want, any, any sign that you can imagine to show that what I'm telling you is true. I mean, we, we can't even fathom that. It would, it would be very incredible if God offered that to us. Sometimes when we look for guidance from God, we consult the Bible, we pray, we look at the circumstances, we get advice from people we respect, and based on that wisdom derived from those sources, we, we make a decision as best we can. But I would bet that no one has ever been at a crossroads of their lives, uh, has ever been sent a messenger from God delivering a message of clear guidance, and then had God back it up by giving you any sign of your choosing. That doesn't happen a lot today. But that's exactly what God's doing to Ahaz. Quite amazing, this wicked king who burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. That's a quote from Chronicles. God is so gracious to Israel, to, to, to Ahaz. And I've got so written there with about six O's. So gracious. Very gracious. Yet does Ahaz believe God? If you look at the end of verse 9, you will see the Lord through Isaiah encouraging faith in Ahaz and his court. He, he turns to all those people who are with Ahaz and he says to them, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. He says, look, trust the Lord. Be firm in your trust of the Lord or you're not going to be firm at all. You're going to completely fall apart. Isaiah has turned to them and all of his advisors. He's calling them to belief. Belief in the Lord. Trust him. Don't be unsound. Don't waver. 
But then even again, even at that point, Ahaz does not believe. And it brings us to verse 11. God has just given Ahaz a good word, promised to back it up with any sign that he wants. One would think that Ahaz would jump at that chance to ask for a sign, to have that truth confirmed. But Ahaz says in verse 12, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now when you read that, you think, well, that's, that's very noble of him because we know that Deuteronomy says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? But he's not being spiritual or noble. He's actually persisting, being very stubborn in his unbelief. To accept the offer of the sign would indicate that Ahaz has some sense that what God is telling him is true, that he would, he would desire to have confirmation that God's word is true. But he doesn't want to hear God's word. He will not even listen to it, and he will not put the Lord God to the test. He's actually putting the Lord God to the test because to persist in unbelief is the ultimate test of God. It's an insult to God. And God says in verse 13 through Isaiah, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? You know, Ahaz has been very nice up to this point. And now he's saying, look, if you persist in your unbelief, you are wearying God. He has been patient with you. And he continues to reach out to you with his grace. And all he asks is that you trust him. Matthew Henry in his comments on this verse said, Nothing is more grievous to the God of heaven than to be distrusted. Will you weary my God? Will you suppose him to be tired and unable to help you or to be weary of doing you good? God gives him a sign. But let's think about what he's doing here, what Ahaz is doing, wearying God. You know, we often, well, just think about people. We struggle with unbelief, humans. Whether you're an unbeliever or even if you are a believer, Unbelief is something that we, with which we all struggle. We, we, as unbelievers, we don't like the, to hear this message that we need forgiveness, that we, we need help from the outside. Maybe you haven't even thought about it. But look, I'm telling you this word. I'm, I'm telling you what the Bible says there's some truth that's out there. It's good news that God forgives sinners like we all are. And there's a way of salvation provided by Christ, and that's why we celebrate Christmas, that God himself came to great lengths in order to save us from our sins. He, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. He lived a perfect life so that you could be declared righteous in his sight. That word, that wonderful good news has come to you. Why will you not accept it? Time and again you hear it. You're here in church. You must come to church on a regular... Do you believe it? Have you put your trust in that, that great message of salvation? Have you leaned upon him to find out if it's true? And then even as believers, you know, we struggle with unbelief. 
we often wallow in guilt and shame. We know we've failed. We continue to fail. We struggle with the same sins over and over again. And, and sometimes we think, well, I have wearied God, and he won't welcome me back. We wallow in guilt and shame like Adam and Eve in the garden. We run from God. When God is doing to us just what he does to Ahaz, he keeps coming back to us and saying, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. You cannot out God's grace. I mean, Ahaz couldn't. God kept coming to Ahaz, even though he was doing some abominable things, and kept coming to him with this message of, trust me. You know, trust the Lord. Yes, maybe we've fallen into sins, but trust that he will continue to forgive you. His grace, uh, it's free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. That's the way it comes to you. If you could earn it or deserve it, he wouldn't have had to come to earth and down the cross. He's done that, and he continues. That's his character that we see played out here. And he's given us a sign to back it up. That sign for Ahaz was a sign of judgment. You know, a son's, there's going to be a, a, a virgin, bear a son, and then it's talking about the time, you know, there's good news in there that, that these two nations, they're going down very quickly in the time it takes for a child to grow up. But there's also this judgment there that Assyria, you're going to invite Assyria to come in, and that's exactly what happened. You're going to invite Assyria to come help you, and, and they're going to be like a razor and shave it down. You know, leave devastation amongst Judah. And it's not, a, it's not a message of wonderful good news for Ahaz because he rejects God's uh, truth. And, and he does. Assyria comes in and they become a vassal state uh, of Assyria until the Babylonians take over and then they're conquered about 150 years later. But as we think about that, you know, we think about this sign of Emmanuel. We're going to look further on because the... The word of Isaiah goes on through 8 and 9. It talks about how Assyria is going to take over and all the things. But God continues, even in chapter 8, to say, look, don't fear. Wait on the Lord. Continue to trust me. And then in chapter 9, it's concluded with, look, there's going to be one born. For unto us a child is born. There is a reason for hope. A child is born, a son is given, and the government will be rested upon his shoulders. He's not going to be like Ahaz. He's going to be a greater king. And that's the, king, that's the sign that he's given to all of us. Does he love you? Will he forgive you? Yes. He came to earth. God himself became a man, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life, suffered on the cross with purpose, knowing that that's what he was doing for sinful people like us who may have done things even as bad as Ahaz. And he invites us to come to him. He's like the father in the the parable of the prodigal son. You know, the son who was living in sin and wound up in the pigsty, squandered everything. He rises up and he says, I'm going to return to the father. Maybe I could just be a slave. But even far off, the father sees him and runs out to him and gives him new clothes and a ring upon his finger. That's the gracious God that is calling us all to put our trust in him. Trust in him today. Turn to him and you will not be disappointed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the encouragement that it is to our hearts. Lord, we pray that 
that you would help our unbelief. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our hearts and that we would run to you and know that it's your character to welcome us and to forgive us and cleanse us. Grant us repentance from our sins, Lord. Pray that we would see the error of our ways and the problems that it creates in the misery of life and the bondage and slavery that is created by sin and help us, Lord, to be free uh, in your love and in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.